0: Morning. Hope you all are doing well. Starting to find your seat. My name is Daniel Lohr. I'm one of the associate pastors here. Uh, I'm here because Nathan and Craig went with Zach to Louisville this last week to uh, get him graduated from seminary. Where's Zach? There he is. Zach graduated. Yeah. He's a uh, he's a master now, master of all things divine. So. You know, they, uh, they, Craig and, and Nathan got stuck. Their plane got canceled and they had to go through all the different places. And they're in Vegas now. They're trying to get home. Long story short, they said, hey, can you handle it? So, like, hey, we got two divs now. If they can't handle a Sunday morning, they should be fired. So hopefully today goes well because I put my career on the line. Um, all right, let's, let's pray before I get lightninged. Lord, um, thank you for. Your kindness um, to Zach to uh, get him to persevere through um, a very long, very difficult um, study um, to complete it. Lord, I pray that you would help him finish his last two weeks well um, and that he would uh, work hard and um, do it all for your glory, Lord. As we uh, turn to this morning and think about um, our lives and what baggage we bring this morning, what uh, burdens we're carrying, Lord, I pray that um, that what you would have for us this morning would uh, would shed light on that to give us good perspective, proper perspective that um, brings hope and joy and peace in the current circumstances. Lord, I I pray for the hearts of those that are here this morning or listening uh, that are hard, that um, whose li- life has beaten them down and they uh, are discouraged. Lord, I ask that you would um, soften them this morning, that your word would be powerful in their lives, that um, whatever it is that I, that I say would be glorifying to you and true. Lord. let, let me not say anything that's false, blasphemous, or foolish, Lord. I, I ask that you would use, use me. what um, I'm inadequate in myself to do this task, to bring your word, which is perfect and pure. Um, and I'm a clay vessel. And I ask that you would use me this morning powerful enough to do that, and we are grateful for that, and I ask um, just for grace and peace on us this morning, um, that your word would transform our hearts to be more like your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray, amen. Um, so in Tatrapi, we, uh we get the same sunset pretty much every night. We don't have clouds hardly at all, and so the sun rises and then it sets, and it looks almost the exact same every single day. But every once in a while, some clouds will roll in, and they'll hit just in the right way, and then we get the most glorious sunsets. And it's like the mundane gives way to this glory that's beautiful. And we, we look at it, and we're, we stop, right? We're driving along, and we may even pull over. We'll, we'll go try and find a v- better vantage point. Or If we're at a house and we see out the window, we'll stop and go out to the front yard so we can get the full picture of the glory of this sunset as it, as it fades. And as it fades, we start to realize, oh, it's going away. And so we pull out our camera or we pull out our, you know, camcorder, you know, or a phone or whatever. And we try and capture it, right? We try and capture that sunset. We want to hold on to it. Something so beautiful, so, so magnificent about it that we want to hold on to it. And we'll do anything we can to capture it. We'll, we'll put it into paintings. We'll post it, post it on social media and just say, man, if I could just grab it and keep it, it would be awesome. I love it that sunset where it's like um, Amy brought some flowers into the office and they smelled so beautiful and they just filled the nostril with this wonderful honeysuckle was my favorite flower that smell is just like and you breathe it in and you get this like you fork, like oh it's amazing and then you breathe out and it's gone right? you breathe in and you try and capture it and you smell it and it's and you know, and then you breathe it out and it and it's going away, and you just like try and hold your breath so you can keep it, but it's gone. It's like that sunset you you try and capture, you want it to be a part of you, and yet it's fleeting. And that sunset, the sun goes down and it fades away into nothing, into darkness. And so all you're left with is a memory of it. And you tell your friends the next morning, did you see the sunset last night? Oh my gosh, yeah, I saw it, it was beautiful, it was amazing. Oh, it didn't just Oh, it just brought your heart alive, didn't it? Yeah, oh my goodness. And you talk about it, and then that gives way, and you fade, your memory starts to fade, and then it's gone. And maybe you capture it on a picture, and you kind of relive it. But ultimately, that, that glory, that feeling is, is gone. It's faded away. And we want to participate in that glory. We want it to be a part of us, and yet it, it eludes us. And so the Bible says, If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 8, we're going to look in detail at verse 18, but I want to read a few verses to kind of help give us some context and explanation for verse 18. Paul starts with the, the key to it and then explains it. And so we'll read the, the whole section and then go back and focus on verse 18 throughout our morning here. So if you would, in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25, read along with me. Nathan's trained us well to have three-point sermons, and I've been sitting under his teaching now for a year, and so now, guess what I have for you? A three-point sermon. Couldn't help it. Had to do it. Fortunately, the verse lended itself to it. Three points. First point, for I consider. So we'll look at what it means to consider. Then we'll look at, second thing, the nature of suffering. And then we'll conclude with the future glory. And so let's first take a look at, cons- at considering. What does it mean when Paul says, for I consider? This is not a casual notion, as if, as if he was like, hmm, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's, let's think about that. Or, yeah, that's how I feel. That's, that's right. No, the consider is a deep understanding, a reflective thought. He's considered one option, another option, considered the truths of Scripture, thought it through carefully, And come to a conclusion. And that conclusion then tells his emotions what to do. The world wants to say, do what you feel. And that's okay. Except for one thing. The heart is desperately wicked. And so what happens when we do what we feel? We do wicked things. And so Paul offers a different approach. Rather than feeling and then doing, he says, consider. For I consider, I think about, make a rational choice about how to how to understand the world. And that then dictates my feelings. See, our feelings are wild and they're awesome. God has given them to us are a gift. I don't want to say that feelings, emotions are bad in any way. I'm not trying to say that. But what the problem is is that we're in a sinful flesh and those emotions run rampant. And so you have to keep them on a leash. Imagine a little dog, right? You've got to keep that dog right up close to you. Right? If you let it off and you let out 20, 30 feet, that thing is going to drag you all over the place. And if you just follow it wherever it goes, it's going to take you into some trouble some places. So you rein it in, you get that leash right, nice and tight to you, and you say, This is how it's going to be. This is the truth. We submit our emotions to the truth of Scripture. So that it leads us in a good place. And so we say, here's the truth. This is what God has taught me. I believe it. Now let my emotions fly. Right? Let it run. That's good. Emotions are good. They're a powerful motivator to do the right thing. If you've considered the truth of Scripture. You've submitted it to the truth of Scripture. If you submit it to your own truth, the world's truth, you end up in bad places. And there's pressures, there's distractions, there's enticements that the world tries to bring to our emotions to lure us into bad places. And it makes us lose perspective. And that's where Paul's at right now. He says, I'm going to consider the right thing to regain a biblical, heavenly perspective. When our emotions wander, what do we have to do? We have to realign ourselves and our thoughts with God's gospel. So what is God's gospel? Let's read verse 18 one more time. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is this gospel except that God is saving a fallen humanity? God is redeeming what is broken and ruined by us and bringing it into glory. That is the gospel through the Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is saving humanity. He is saving us in our sinful fallenness and bringing us into glory. And this this perspective sheds light onto all of our lives in everyday life. It isn't just salvation that is important, but it isn't just that. The gospel then sheds light onto all of our life, how we are to live, how we are to act, how we are to think, and that's where Paul is. I'm going to think correctly. But then we come to the second part about suffering. And then we need to jump back to verse 17 really quickly because it's a difficult thing. So jump back to verse 17. It says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Okay, that's great. Stop right there. We're doing good. We want that. We like that. Hey, God's the king. He's in control of all things. We're heirs. That means like son... God relationship. This is good. Heirs implies inheritance, right? That means we get good things from God. God produces good things. All good and gifts come from the, from heaven above. God, right? And we're going to get that. We like that. Excellent. God, we got good gifts. I'm on board. That sounds good. Line myself up with Christ. Get some good gifts. Then we keep reading. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Provided... That we suffer with him. Oh. Oh, that's different. I'd rather not go through that part. The heirs, that's a good deal. King, princes and princesses, we like that. We dress up that way when we're kids. We want to be heirs to the heavenly throne. That sounds great. Provided we suffer with him. Not so much. Not so much. But Jesus didn't escape suffering, did he? Well, no. Matter of fact, he didn't. Just to not escape it, but he came for that purpose. And he came to earth to suffer, in order to suffer. He didn't run from it. He went to it, suffering for our benefit, of course, for his glory. But we have a natural human reaction is to withdraw from suffering, and this is a good thing. I don't want to. I don't want a bunch of. Uh, what do you call those people who like pain? That's not the, whatever that fancy word is. Like, it's not that. Okay, I'm not trying to advocate for enjoying pain. It's a good natural reaction. When, when you get poked with a pin, you withdraw. When you get punched in the face, you pull back. That's normal. That's good. You should, with, you should avoid suffering in that regard. But the world mixes it up, and they add one little thing. Avoid suffering at all costs. That's the world's motto. Avoid suffering at all costs whatever it whatever it takes, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to feel pain. So I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. I'm going to sacrifice other people. I'm not going to serve. That would be cause pain and suffering. I don't want to do that. I don't want to put myself in a vulnerable p- position. I don't want to... You fill in the blanks. I don't want to suffer. I don't want pain. I'll do whatever it takes to not do it. And Jesus said, no, I will suffer for the right reason. For God's law. I will suffer for God's People. So he doesn't run. And if Jesus didn't run, why should we run? And why do we run? Should not try to avoid suffering. But what is suffering? I think there's two kinds of suffering described in the Bible, categorically. Two kinds of suffering. One, I think there's first, there's sin-induced suffering. So kid takes a kid steals candy from the cabinet, takes it to their room, whole bag of candy, wolfs down the whole bag of candy quickly before the mother finds out, then what happens? Stomach ache, right? Induce vomiting, right? Sin, natural consequence, stomach ache. Okay, you guys can take it to whatever sin thing that you can think of in your own head. There's natural consequences to sin. And we don't, we don't really have a problem with that, right? We get that. We get that there's That you do something wrong, you deserve to be punished, right? That's why we put people in jail. You say, oh, that's why we have that thing. You got what's coming to you. We get that. Sin, no problem. Sin. Now, that's not really the kind of suffering that that Romans 8.18 is talking about. Romans 8.18 is really talking about a second kind of suffering. The suffering that comes as a result of being in a fallen world. Suffering that you had no part in. That you didn't do on your own. Yes, you're sinful, and in that, you are tied to this fallen humanity, but you had no direct cause, right? So there's there's all kinds of suffering in this category. There's illness, right? Getting sick, getting cancer, um, even having a crummy job, right? I hate my job. It's part of suffering in a fallen world. In heaven, you won't hate your job, but here on this earth, you may. Um, ground is hard. You may have the death of a loved one. Someone just died dies out of nowhere too young for their age or uh, you know strokes heart attacks these sort of sudden deaths that we just why they didn't do anything wrong they were just living god matter of fact they were glorifying god with their life and then death happened and we grieve and we suffer from death we didn't do anything why did why do we deserve this pain we don't Natural disasters, of course, hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, drought here, fire, famine—it's all coming. You know all these things. Why? It's why all this pain, why all this suffering, and the world wants to. I, I love the world's attempt to try and blame it on. Let's blame it on humanity. These natural disasters are all humans' faults, and if we can just stop doing what we were doing, then we can fix it, and there won't be any more suffering. Before we talk any more about that, it's one more thing, and inside of the second category, be righteous suffering. There's suffering that happens as a result of righteous living. Persecution. It's not super prevalent yet here in this country, um, but across the world, it is very prevalent. The idea that if you are a Christian, just simply being a Christian brings suffering on your life. Family rejects you, the world, they imprison you, the government imprisons you, or what have you, they beat you up, they kill you, etc., etc. You suffer just because you were a Christian. And that's a little bit distant from us. We don't quite get that. But there's a second righteous suffering. And this is the one that I think Jesus faced the most, more than any of us ever will. That's the suffering from resisting sin. So sin comes at us like a, a gale force wind. We're holding ourselves up against it, it's pushing at us, we're trying to stand. And it gets, the longer it goes, the harder it is to stand and resist. And it gets easy when you just lay down. If I just lay down, that suffering, that, resi- that pain that has come from trying to stand against the, resist- the temptation to sin, gets really easy when you lay down. Right? The wind just blows right over you. Jesus never laid down. For his whole life, not once, did he ever lay down. He suffered the temptation of sin drawing, pushing at him. And yes, we have the three temptations that we read about early on in Matthew. But then after that, his whole life, people are coming at him. Just do this. Just do this. Why don't you teach that? We're going to hurt you if you do that thing. His whole life, people are trying to draw him away from what, the God's, what God's will is for his life. And he says, no, I will not give in ever for an even for a moment. I won't relax. My whole life, I will push back against sin. He never gives up. Never gives up. We give up from time to time. We resist for a while. We say, ah, this is too hard. We lay down. God says, no, get back up. Get back up. But we long for that suffering to end, don't we? Of all kinds. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Skip down to 23. Not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait, eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. <sighs> Can't wait to not be tired anymore. We long for that moment. We want the suffering at the end. We don't love it. We don't love the suffering. The pain, it's not enjoyable. The pain itself is not what we want. We want it to go away. We really want it to go away. The Bible agrees, yeah, I get it. You want it to go away. But look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. I like this verse because of it, it captures into my favorite book of the Bible. Not allowed to have favorite books of the Bible. Can't have favorite children. Can't have favorite books of the Bible, except for that. I do have a favorite book of the Bible. Don't have a favorite child, though. I love them all the same equally as like the kids. But my favorite book of the Bible... Ecclesiastes, and there's this word futility translated here, everybody struggles um, translating Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2, you've probably heard it famously, vanity of vanities, everybody translates it differently, futility, whatever the case, vapor, nothingness, meaninglessness, whatever the case, if you remember back from my sermon last summer, probably don't, but I do, so in that sermon, I talked about this word "vanity." It's a difficult word to understand. There's a, it encapsulates a lot of meaning in it, um, but I described it as a vapor. Right? There's a vapor that comes up and it appears for a moment, and you try to grab that vapor, and as you grab it and hold it in your hand, you try to hold it, and the tighter you squeeze onto it, the faster it squeaks through your hand and it goes through. The, and then it's, you open your hand, and it's gone, and there's nothing left. That that is. Vanity, that is futility, is that you're trying to grab it, and no matter how much you, you try and grab that vapor, it's, there's nothing left. You have nothing to show for your efforts. That is the futility. This is the same word when they translated the Hebrew of Ecclesiastes into Greek. They used this same word, futility. This futility of life. You read Ecclesiastes, and it says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There's nothing, no purpose under the sun. And that's after, you just have read Proverbs, and Proverbs says, if you do it this way, here's your benefit. Obey God, here's your, here's your blessing. Obey God, here's your blessing. Okay, don't do that, and you get this. Okay, good, got it figured out. Then you read Ecclesiastes, and it says, no matter what you try and do, nothing works out. What is that about? So Paul, here, again, look at verse 20 carefully. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility, skip down, in hope. He connects futility and hope. Why does he connect futility and hope? What is that about? It's a weird connection. Everything, so you have this with children. They like to build towers. Rather, children like you to build towers. And so you take the Lincoln Logs or the Legos and you build a tower and you get it up to this high. And what do they do? Bam! They kick it. Right? Boom. Knock your tower. You're putting on the last block, and then boom, they knock it over. They're like, what? That was purpose. And they're like, hope! I don't get it. No, there's no hope. I just, you ruined all of my efforts. We get to build it again! Okay, and so it is. Look at Genesis. Everybody flip over to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. You guys know this? Bible story, I hope. The Tower of Babel. This is just after the flood. Everybody's got the same language. They're doing really good. People are super smart. Um, they've now gotten all together. And they say, hey, we're going to do something awesome. We're going to build a really great city. And we're going to put a big tower. And it's going to be glorious. And we're going to have this great life. Everything's going to be awesome. We're going to be able to just figure it all out. And we're going to be okay if we just stick together. And This is directly contrary to God's commands. And so we read in chapter 11, verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Nothing that they do will be impossible for them. God is proud of his creation, and he knows humanity is really smart. They figured it out. And he knows, he's like, man, I've made this awesome human being. And they multiply, and there's tons of them. And they get together, and they make really awesome things, and that's super cool. Except that there was one problem. They put their hope in what they could do. They were super, super smart and so dumb. And God said, I have got to save them from this. What is his answer to saving them? How does he save them? He goes and he smashes what they're doing. He kicks their tower over says no that's not it and he confuses their language and you have the one guy and he's going to put the thing here but the manager said to put it over here but he doesn't understand so he puts it here and he yells at him and he's mad at him and everybody's getting upset and the whole thing and they just say forget it this is not worth it i'm out of here and they leave and then you go over here and you go over here we speak the same language and god frustrates the whole plan of man why because they had started putting their hope in themselves To save themselves. We are going to build this awesome city. We are going to build this awesome tower. And we are going to have a great life. They put their hope in their creation. God says no. No. It's not going to save you. So God in his mercy. In his graciousness. He subjected them to futility. Why? So that they would give up their hope in creation. Because their problem was not in creation. Their problem is relational between them and God. That was their problem, and they didn't see it. So they were trying to solve it by creating this awesome city. He said, no, that's not going to get you there. Stop it. In his mercy, he frustrated their efforts. Um, There's this guy that I like. It's just fascinating to me. He's just the, the most interesting man to me. His name is Elon Musk. Have you heard of him? You have first service had not heard of him. They just sat quietly. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Uh, yeah, this brilliant. I think he he may be the most brilliant man this of this generation. It is just incredible the way his mind works. You know, I listen to these interviews, and he's it's fun. It's great because he's so. Open, he just talks. He just talks. This is what I'm thinking, and he gets himself into trouble sometimes because he says too much. Um, but he's a fascinating man. The way his brain works. What he does, he's like, yeah, I'm going to build some, like, electric cars, this PayPal thing, and then electric cars, and then spaceships, and these are all connected, right? And then tunnels for cars, and we're going to do this thing, and we're going to tap into the human brain and connect it to a computer. He's got these ideas, and then he does them, and you're like, people say, that's impossible. And he's like, yeah, I'm just going to do it anyway. And then he does it, and you're like, whoa, this guy is crazy smart. Um, But I was listening to an interview of his one time, and he got off. Talking about the meaning of life, um, and you know, someone says, "What is? What is? Why are we here? What's the purpose? Why? What drives you?" You know, and he he said, "What drives me is the hope that I can find the meaning in life, in science, and in technology. If we just get a better grasp on the way the universe works, we'll be able to figure it out. We need to increase man's." conscientiousness right consciousness that that man if man obtains a higher level of consciousness to understand the universe and the way it works then we can figure out what the meaning of life is and then be fulfilled in what we're doing and he says if we just advance science and technology far enough we'll figure it out he has put his hope in creation in the tower that he's going to build devastating Sad is he's read he's read this and he misses it there is no hope in creation that's why God has subjected it to futility so that in all of your efforts as you try and make something great of yourselves God has subjected it fu- to futility for your good for your benefit you look at Ecclesiastes everything under the sun is meaningless it's true it's meaningless because you should have your eyes on eternal glory Right now is not going to save you. You got a broken relationship with the Father, that's your problem. Your problem is not here. One other thing. Look at Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five, verse verses three and four. There's one other thing that Paul wants to say about suffering and hope. Look at verse 3. It says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. He fills in the gap for us. How do we get from suffering to hope? It says, First step is endurance. Suffering comes, you endure through it. You don't give up. You don't lay down. You continue. You persevere through the suffering and that endurance then produces character the character god is building you he's strengthening you in himself to be able to withstand the suffering why because it produces hope the result of suffering is hope did paul enjoy suffering no not in itself but he knew that it produced hope suffering is real suffering is painful Suffering is unpleasant in and of itself. But Paul kept his eyes forward and saying, No, this is going to produce hope in me. So he welcomed it. Flip over real quick to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He has more to say about suffering. Paul was good at suffering, he did a lot of it. He understood it well. And in his suffering, whippings. Stoning, shipwrecks, poison by a snake, all of those things. He says in Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. What's Paul's conclusion? More suffering equals more comfort from Christ. The more I suffer, the more pain I go through, the more Christ is there with me, beside me deepening our relationship I get to be closer to Christ as I suffer so his conclusion then is yeah bring more suffering I get more comfort that's great you want to you persecute me more great I'm going to be more comforted by Christ and we see this in people's lives you talk to someone who has suffered well there's two kinds so you suffer and then you you give up you, get, you, you curse God shake your fist at God and say forget you I hate you But then there's those who turn to Christ, find comfort in Him, and those who have suffered hard and turned to Christ. I think of my friend Ruthie. She said I could talk about her, so it's okay. My friend Ruthie just went through um, heart surgery, painful, painful surgery. I don't know if you know much about it, but it is from what I've seen in the recovery. I mean, it's just open it up painful surgeries, painful recovery, suffering indeed. She's not phased for a moment. She's been through suffering her whole life. Loss of loved ones, illnesses, great suffering. She is rock solid. That suffering has produced hope in her that can't be touched. No one's going to be able to walk up to her and say, Hey, do you, uh, you, know, you know, God, the Bible's not true, you know, right? Hey, have you heard about evolution? It's very convincing. <laughs> She's just going to walk away. Like, no, uh, you have nothing to offer me. Christ has comforted me through great suffering. You can't touch me. One day I'll be with him in heaven. She has a solid hope that can't be touched. Her faith is unshakable. Because of the suffering that she's gone through, you contrast that with somebody who's lived a luxurious life, millionaires with their yachts and their houses and their whatnots. Man, they're they're like a, sh- a ship tossed in the sea. Man, One, they're over here looking at this religion this day, and over here looking at this religion that day. Then they're an atheist, and then I uh, find my hope in this thing. I find my hope in that thing. They're all over the place. The suffering produces hope. The building of character. And so it's good for us, even though it's painful. But the hope in what? What is it that we're hoping for? Yes, great, we have hope. Hope for what? This brings us to our third point. Future glory. Okay, look at, again, go back into Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's a difficult uh, Greek word, the to us or into us. Into us is maybe the one way to do it. So so some versions say in us, some say to us. And as you start to search through Scripture to understand what, is it to us or in us? Yes, it is into us, right? We become a part of that glory. But we have this competitive verse here where it's contrasting the the here and the now, the suffering and the here and the now, and the, the there and the later. Right. So we have the here and the now, and we have verses that, the the there and the later. What I find particularly interesting about Paul's approach here is that he doesn't compare his suffering to anybody else, or even, for that matter, to his previous suffering, or his future suffering. That's irrelevant here. Right. And Paul suffered greatly. He, he tells us all about how he suffered at other points, but he's saying my hope, my comfort is not in that. I don't make myself feel better by comparing my suffering to somebody else's suffering. It's irrelevant. Right? You say, oh, my my suffering is its not as bad as that person, or, or some people are the other side of it. My suffering is way worse than that person. Well, that's all great and well until you find somebody whose suffering is worse or not as good or It's fluctuating. So Paul says that, forget that. Or you say to yourself, well, this isn't as bad as it was. At least it's not what it was. Yeah, but it could get worse. I mean, who knows? Maybe it gets better, maybe it gets worse. Who knows? Paul says, I don't find any hope in that, in the fluctuations of human suffering. You get some, I get some. Your suffering is your suffering. That doesn't matter what anybody else is suffering. It's painful for you right now. That is what's important. God has brought you the suffering he's brought you for his purposes in your life. doesn't matter about everybody else's suffering. So he compares it not to anybody else, but he compares it to what? Future glory. Something that is sure and stable and fantastic. He says, okay, over here on this side, the here and the now, we have a little bit of Suffering. And it's temporary. Some of us will get 70, 80, maybe 100, 120 years. Who knows what you'll get? It's decades of suffering. And on the other hand, he says over here, you get mountains and mountains of glory forever. Over here, a tiny little bit of this, nothing. And over here, mountains and mountains and mountains of glory. Put them on the scale. This one. Weighs zero and this one weighs infinite. Oh, boom. Not, No contest. Which one's better? He says, which one's better? This one? Which one's worse? Is this worse outweigh is it worth it? Right? Is it is this suffering at this present time worth what I'll get later? The benefits of later? He set, puts them together against each other. No contest, right? No contest. Went the other backwards. No contest. But why is this future glory so good? Nathan told me last week, he said, hey, you know, uh, probably ought to connect it to Exodus somehow, you know, keep the flow going. If you like your job, you might want to keep, keep Exodus going. So, okay, Mr. Nathan, sure thing. Fortunately for me, the scriptures lended themselves to that. If we look at Exodus, we see some examples of glory in the Old Covenant. We have the example of the burning bush, right? God's glory. Moses comes, sees the burning. What is this? He gets close. God says, take your shoes off this holy ground. God's glory is being revealed in this burning bush to Moses in a very limited way. And then then we have this other example. The mountain is on fire, right? We just talked about this two weeks ago. The mountain's on fire. There's lightning. There's earthquakes. There's this glory of God covered with smoke. Later on, we're going to read about Moses. Walking past God's glory and his face starting to shine such that he has a, have to wear a veil so that people don't freak out. God's glory is just radiating from Moses' face. But what do these three things have in common? Two things. One, they're all veiled. They're veiled glory. It's not God's full glory, it's a veiled amount of. Li, Moses literally wore a veil. The mountain was covered in smoke. it's veiled. Number two, it's temporary. Right? The the bush stopped burning. Presumably it went back to being green and alive. The mountain stopped shaking. The fire subsided. The mountain went back to being Mount Sinai. Moses' face eventually faded back to normal. Didn't have to wear the veil the rest of his life. All of it faded. It was all temporary. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter three, so you know that I'm not making this connection up. man he's got really got a stretch. What is he talking about? Okay, fortunately, the Bible saves me here. Second Corinthians chapter three, if you don't know us, Romans, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter three comes after two, before four. verse seven. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, he's talking about the law came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. Which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? It's in the New Covenant he's talking about. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. What is the future glory? What's the difference between the old covenant glory and the new covenant glory? The new covenant glory is permanent, right? It's not temporary. It's not fading. It's permanent, and it's unveiled. Unveiled. Full access to God's glory. So because of that, it's so much better. It's the same... Same glory, different covenants, God's glory being revealed to us in a full way, a full way. We have better access to God's glory. But we still haven't said much about what this glory is. And that's okay, because the Bible doesn't say much about what the glory is either. Mostly says about what it's not. So let's take a look at at that. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more; neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away." How does it describe being in God's presence and God's glory? Describes it, by, by what? It's not. No more tears. No more pain. No more death. What is all of that? Suffering. There will be no more suffering in heaven. In God's glory, there's no more suffering. It's so hard to describe what the glory is because there's nothing like it, this side of heaven. It's so much greater, so far surpassing everything in our experience that he can't say, hey, it's like this, or it's like this. He says, well... It's not like that, and it's not like that, and it's not like that. It's everything better. And so he—that's how the Bible often describes glory, but—but but not exclusively. It—it it wants, we want to say something about what it is in the positive. What is it to be in God's glory? To have God's glory. Go back to that analogy I had at the beginning of the sunset. Talked about the sunset is beautiful. Right? And this is glorious sunset and we say, oh, I just want to capture it. I want to have it. I want it to be a part of me. C.S. Lewis brings us this analogy. I stole it from him, by the way. Footnote. C.S. Lewis. Weight of Glory. Great book. Read it. And he says, this is like you just want it to be a part of you and in glory in heaven, it will be a part of you. It will be in and among you. All of the the, the negatives will be gone, but the the positives of that beauty becoming a part of you. When you breathe in the smell of the flowers, it doesn't leave you. You don't exhale it. It stays a part of who you are as you are a son or daughter of God to fully embrace His glory. The full spread of emotions and feelings, I said at the beginning, we had to keep those emotions right next to us Right? We can't let them loose. We got to keep them on a short lease, or they're going to run wild. In heaven and glory, we let those emotions go. Man, they, boom, woke you up, huh? So I mean, f- half asleep. I saw a couple of heads jump up. We're all right, halfway through. We're almost there. Man, the full breadth of, of emotion gets unleashed, and we get to feel all within, without any concern for feeling anything wrong. We get to think clearly so frustrating in this life. There's things about God that we don't understand. The kids, my kids are constantly bugging me, explain the Trinity to us, and I say, I can't. I'm a fallen human being who doesn't understand the things of God. And they say, Yeah, but explain it to me. And I say, But I can't. But in heaven, God will explain Himself to us and we will say, I get it. We'll say to God, How is it, God, that you can be all powerful and sovereign, and yet we still have real choice. And we're responsible for our decisions. How is this possible? And right now we say, I don't get it. I'm too dumb. God says, that's okay. In glory, I will explain it to you. And you'll get it. And you'll be like, oh. All of this is wrapped up in glory. Lewis, C.S. Lewis goes on to, to say it's total approval by God. Before the cross... We were rejected by God because of sin, right? Totally rejected by God, our Creator. You're sinful. You can't be in my presence. You have to be away from me. In glory, we will be perfectly accepted by God the Father. You say, well, that seems a little bit selfish. Maybe in some respects it is, but there's something in our human nature that God has built into us to want that. Think about children. As they look to their father, right? Right? How much does a child long for their father to approve of them? For me to say to them, that is my daughter, Kasha, and that is my daughter, Hannah. You still paying attention, Hannah? How much is it, how great is it for us to approve of our children, for our children to want our approval? It's something that God has built into us to love. For us to look at him, we get to heaven, and he looks at us, and there's a crowd of angels, and he looks at us, that is my son, right there and i love him no greater glory than that so paul puts into perspective the sufferings of this current time romans 8:18 8, for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us we are accepted not temporarily but forever So Paul compares this temporary suffering. He even calls it light afflictions. Paul calls his sufferings light afflictions. By comparison to anybody else's afflictions? No. Irrelevant. By comparison to the weight of glory that will be revealed in and to him. Temporary, eternal. Eternal. The short and bad and small compared with the great eternal good. There's nothing to compare. But how do we know if it's ours? How do we know if we get that glory? You're sitting here wondering maybe, is that me? Do I get that? Am I a part of that team? Is God going to point at me and say, my son? Or is he going to say, get out? How do we know? Romans 8, 23. Not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What is it? It's the fruit of the Spirit. What does that mean, the fruit of the Spirit? It's a weird analogy. We're not Most of us here aren't farmers. For those of you who grow a garden, maybe you've been down to Bakersfield or something, spring comes, and there's trees, and they put off this first fruit. And it's, you pick it, and it's a small crop, and you're like, okay, a couple... A couple fruit what is that first fruit it's the promise of a future harvest it's a promise of a lot more no farmer goes out picks the fruit and says yeah all right i got it i got my harvest i'm good i've got three apples here happy no it's like all right this is the promise that more is coming a lot more is coming and it's better and so we have the first fruits of the spirit god says right now i'm going to give you a part of it i'm going to give you a taste of the glory to come That is, I'm going to put the Holy Spirit inside of you. If you are a redeemed believer, you get the Holy Spirit right now. And what does it come out like? What does it look like? Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc. It's the fruit of the Spirit in your life. So you get the Spirit when you are saved. He indwells your heart and produces in you good. All kinds of good. And you have that in your life, you look at your life, is there evidence at all that God is working in your heart? Your friends and your family say, Oh, yeah, that person's a child of God. Or do they say, Hard to tell. Know. I mean, every once in a while they do something good, but usually it's pretty selfish anyway. Or is there a sacrificial service of others the way that Jesus did, the Spirit of God inside of you? It's only you can answer that. God will answer it one day, I should say that. But that promise of the first fruits, that guarantee, and other, other verses say, the guarantee or the down payment, this is your guarantee. If you have the Holy Spirit, you are guaranteed to go to heaven. You are guaranteed to be a son or daughter of God. Guaranteed you cannot undo it. going to happen. God won't revoke His promise. If you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of your heart, you are guaranteed not to go to heaven. There isn't, well, maybe we'll see when we get there. No, you're either in or you're out by the guarantee of the Holy Spirit in you right now. As evidenced by fruit in your life. And so if you have repented of your sins and you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins because you could do nothing and you've received the Holy Spirit, guaranteed salvation, guaranteed glory, all of the wonderful things that we expounded today, are yours in Christ. Okay, so what have we learned about suffering today? Well, first, consider, remember, point one, consider properly. Your emotions are going to go all over the place. I feel this about myself. I feel that about myself. Suffering is too much. Whatever the case, whatever you feel, you say, hold on. We put that down for a moment. What is the truth of Scripture? The suffering is temporary and light compared with the glory that's coming okay consider the truth of scripture I'm a child of God I'm not a miserable wretched nothing I'm a child of the king the truth of scripture consider and then bring your emotions in line with those thoughts second thing we learned suffering the nature of suffering it's real it's painful it hurts it has a purpose has a purpose to produce hope in us produce character that produces hope, unwavering faith that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and brings the comfort that he promises. Our hope is not in creation. It's not in how good we do. It's not in what we can accomplish. It's not in how much money, etc., etc. Anything inside of the realm of this created order, there is no hope in that, Ecclesiastes. There is hope in future glory put in perspective trials of this life and the final thing we learned is glory the weight of eternal glory the goodness of God unfiltered unveiled eternal in power not in this age but in the age to come it will be fully ours provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him let's pray Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness. Lord, that you would come to this earth and suffer for our sake. And Lord, while our sufferings, we know that they are real, and you even allow us to admit that they are painful and real. Lord, we also know that by your word, that they are temporary and light by comparison to the glory that shall be revealed to us. God, I ask that you would imprint on our hearts this week that these sufferings are such that they are temporary. Lord, that we would look to eternal glory to persevere and endure through the sufferings, that it would build character in our hearts and ultimately produce hope in the glory that is coming. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.